Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 23rd of March, as we record. With me today are Alex Newman. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Dan. Julian Hoffman. Hello, Dan. And Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Hi, Dan. Coming up, we are taking a closer look at the latest developments in the banking sector after another week of fairly hectic activity and, of course, the emergency takeover of Credit Suisse. And it is also the end of the tax year in a couple of weeks. So this week's magazine is a bumper edition, our annual ISA special. To mark the occasion, we are speaking to FT consumer editor and former IC stalwart Claire Barrett. We will be discussing her book, What They Don't Teach You About Money, a conversation that's full of interesting points. I can say that because we pre-recorded it. Uh, And it is of interest, even if you consider yourself well-versed on the subject of money, as many of our listeners hopefully will. So uh, that's coming up. Before all that, though, we are starting with rats and insects, specifically Rentakill, which reported full-year results last week that were very well-received. Uh, Mark, you covered the figures for us. It's fair to say that the blockbuster Terminix acquisition has got off to a decent start, it seems. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, management highlighted the positive effect it's had on on margins, albeit it's only been in, integrated within the company or with, within the group for a few months now. Uh, it, in, in fact, it was just one of a number of acquisitions through the year, over 50, I believe, which is not unusual for Rent-A-Kill, but this this acquisition was described by management as a, a landmark deal. And uh, if early indications uh, are believed, then you know that's that's more than warranted. I got that one of the points I think that you made uh, prior to coming on air here is that uh, you know how can we gauge it at this stage? And uh, it it does come down to management's early comments as well, and they, and they alluded to the um benefits that uh, it's had on uh, profitability which would be something really because when you if you look uh, back uh, beyond 20, 2022 when they had so many acquisitions rentakill's gross margin was averaging something in the region of 23% it drops down to about uh, 12 13% at at the operating level so the implication is is that Terminex was going to have to be a pretty profitable business in order to to match those levels. I guess the other interesting point about it as well is that uh, it always relates to the debt pile itself. And while it only represents uh, 79% of shareholder funds, I was looking at the um, uh, the quick ratio uh, for rent to kill as well, and that provides. Some some consternation, but um, it, it is a it is a cash uh, business. The the cash flows are fairly predictable as well because a lot of them are uh, predicated on long term uh, contracts, uh, and many of those contracts as well are flexible in terms of uh, price pass through. So I, I think you know we will obviously have to wait for the interim uh, results to see what impression that it has on on the bottom line. But I think the, the early indications are, are pretty positive. I mean, like um, it's, it's placed Red to Kill in a, in a fantastic position within the world's largest pest control market in, in the US as well. It's got the same uh, defensive qualities uh, as Red to Kill. So, I mean, it, 
you know, if, if all the synergies are correct that they're pointing to, then it, it really will be a, a very significant deal for the company. Yeah, just to put a bit of colour on the deal, it was late 2021, I think the deal was agreed. 5.4 billion, you know, pretty significant even by the standards of an acquisitive company. As the name suggests, Terminix is focused on termites, which, while not such a big deal over here, are a big issue in the US because of the prevalence of uh, timber frame housing, which we discussed on a recent podcast and a separate issue. Uh, Rent-a-girl, I suppose, when people hear the name, you know, you think of uh, uh, residential pest control, but historically, I think about 80% of their business in pest control has been commercial. Terminix is a bit is a bit different, is a little more focused on the residential side of things, so it does uh, sort of balance that out a little bit more. Uh, as you say, Mark, you know, this company, this business is what seems like a classic defensive play. You know, the the uh, pest problems don't uh, uh, rise and fall in line with economic cycles. So, you know, the organic growth, which Rentkill reported last week, even aside from the Terminix deal, is in theory still going to be coming through whatever the state of the economy. Well, it, well, exactly that, isn't it? You know, it's uh, if you've got a rat in your house or you're infested with termites, it's, it doesn't fall under the heading of discretionary expenditure, does it? So, and, and plus, as you uh, mentioned there as well, the high proportion, as far as Rentacle goes, of um, of sort of commercial uh, contract work um, augurs well for the future as well. I, I did note uh, that within the results there, they there was a marked fall away in the um, in volumes for uh, disinfectants that uh, Renticule produce, that was to be expected of it. It's one of those post-COVID uh, uh, impacts as well. Uh, and, and that's we, we've seen that across the board in other uh, companies uh, such as uh, Procter & Gamble as well. Um, that, that's only a, that was only a relatively minor uh, effect. Other than that, volumes are pretty, pretty steady, really. Um, on a, a rating thing, we, it, it's, it's a fairly it's a fairly high forward rating of uh, twenty six times, but we've um, we maintain that it's basically a it's a long term buy and forget option for your portfolio. It's a type of company that, um, like a value investor, like a Warren Buffett, would automatically gravitate towards. So we think, even though it is that rating is uh, a little bit on the high side. Given the successful integration of Terminex, we we think you know um, I think it's trading around about the five forty mark at the moment. That's that's a decent entry point. Alex, uh, you uh, wanted to talk about Rentacle because, as it happens, it has uh, risen to the top of a screen you've been looking at recently, a stock screen on a few metrics. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of a stock I'm, uh, stock screen I'm trying to develop, which I mean, I provisionally called it the strong and stable screen but i suppose for those who don't like political jinxes we might have to rebrand it um but it's the idea is to kind of take an agnostic view of uh, valuation and earnings growth and um and basically look at stocks whose share price over the last year has been pretty stable as a sort of proxy for being able to handle what is you know a really tricky background you know a backdrop for um for for business and i suppose inve- investors appraisal of of um of future cash flows etc and so there's there's also a liquidity test in there but i, I mean for a company like rentical it's not really not really an issue because it's a it's a big FTSE 100 name um and in addition to those two tests there uh, the screen also looks for how close the stock is to its its 52 week high 
and uh, for stocks with good sort of top core soil um, momentum. Uh, and if you, you you put all these qualities together, you basically have a, a group of sort of very high quality uh, stocks and other other names in there like Smiths, Bunzel, Relics, and and the the LSE. And I think you know th- these are companies where um, okay they're they're looking pricey, but the sentiment is good and the stock has been able to hold on to its price gains um, by virtue of some combination of earnings momentum uh, or investor faith. I, I, I mean, until I looked into the the Terminix deal and the recent results, I didn't realise actually how you know how successful a year Rentacle has, has really had, while everyone else has seemed to be having a, a pretty tough time. Um, but I mean, I mean, this you know the, the screen it's kind of looking for a proxy of, of companies which might survive. Um, in you know if, if there's a continuation of the environment we've seen over the last year and yeah i mean for the reasons we've we've talked about i mean it doesn't get more defensive than um than you know the job of a, of a ratter really yeah i think that's a fair point on the the terminix deal there maybe are a couple of uh technicalities to flag just in terms of how that's accounted for uh one issue uh as far as i understand it with terminix is is you know, as with I think Rentacle in general, but with termites, you know, you do get a, a warranty uh, when your your uh, home or your property is is you know protected against these uh, these mites, and uh, that does open up the potential of legal action in future. I think it's a very small proportion of customers. Uh, I think Rentacle is actually capping the liabilities there, but but the way it, it accounts for those claims is changing slightly. Um, it says in the presentation simply because under U.S. accounting rules. Uh, litigation claims were expensed through the P&L. Under IFRS, uh, the future liability has been modelled and been put on the balance sheet. So that is going to reduce cash conversion a little bit and, you know, it's something to watch for, but I I don't think uh, it's necessarily going to be a a damaging uh, factor for the business as a whole. The the other thing, uh, maybe just to conclude on on this section, Terminix is a big US business. Rentkill does have big ambitions there. Management was quite uh, unequivocal, actually, uh, when asked on the analyst call about, you know, listings, which, again, is is a subject we've discussed in recent weeks. You know, when it was asked about the prospect of a U.S. listing, it said, we're not looking at this at all. Um, You know, not even additional listing. They're very happy to be a a British company, which, uh, uh, you know, is refreshing on one level to hear. Uh, And some analysts actually have pointed out an interesting point. You know, Rentkill does still have ambitions in Asia and Asia-Pacific, it does have uh, interest there already, that the UK, from a purely from a temporal perspective, is quite a good place to be if you're a global business, meaning you can manage the company in Asia and in the US, all from a time zone in the middle. Cruelly, so, cruelly the centre of the world. Exactly. It's the headquarters. So perhaps, perhaps that will be the saving grace of the UK market, the fact we're, uh, you know, Greenwich Mean Time and all that. We'll move on to our second segment, though. We are talking again about banks. Things have quietened down a little bit as we record. But since we uh, last recorded, there has, of course, been the emergency rescue of Credit Suisse by UBS. Uh, There's been a a lot of outcry over a particular aspect of that rescue, uh, which we'll come to in a moment, in terms of the wiping out of the 81 bonds that Credit Suisse had issued. Uh, There are also still lingering concerns in the US, of course. First Republic Bank is the latest to be uh, facing quite a lot of pressure, certainly stock market share price wise, despite an attempted, uh, well, despite an actual infusion of deposits from Wall Street last week. So let's start with Credit Suisse, Julian. Uh, 
you know, a storied bank, albeit, as we said last week, one that has had uh, scandal after scandal in recent years. And, and that perhaps, you know, pr ultimately prompted its downfall, given it was still very shaky at a time of, of mass uncertainty, really. Well, yes, you can, you can pick your nickname, either Debit Swiss or Credit Suicide, uh, whichever one is most appropriate. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, the difference between now and last week, as you mentioned, is is that the Swiss regulators have basically decided to upend the relationship of bondholders and equity holders in the company by effectively wiping out the junior bondholders in preference to giving uh, the equity holders at least a stake in uh, UBS, which uh, stepped in to take over the shell of the company. Uh, this has caused uh, a lot of commentary, uh, it's fair to say. Uh, we're already seeing that um, bond prices for banks have risen quite sharply in response to that. So essentially, uh, debt holders are demanding uh, more payment for risk now that it seems that uh, their traditional rights over the um, the ownership of the company have been appended. Uh, it should, have, you know, we do have to emphasise that these uh, bonds were kind of high risk anyway, so holding them was uh, came with a certain number of uh, of caveats, but um, they were sort of sold on the basis that the bondholders would have some kind of claim on the underlying asset, and and that now has disappeared. So it, it's a very bold action you could say by the swiss or brave or courageous uh whatever civil service term uh is most appropriate in that sense um but uh, it does have a, a ripple effect i think that's the thing about this particular crisis that uh is its most salient feature that having solved one problem you seem to create another one in a slightly different way further down the line for uh, other institutions uh but having having said that uh, Credit Suisse itself was uh, a fairly unique case, I think it's fair to say, in, the, in European banking, in that it shared quite a lot of the features of SBV, SVB in America, in that its deposit base was very concentrated. It had uh, single, very high net worth individuals who, used to, who deposited their money there. And it's exactly that kind of group that um, will just uh, take money out and move it somewhere else at uh, a moment's notice. So in some ways they had, they had this strange kind of similarity, but I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, we won't have heard the last of uh, that issue uh, in throughout the rest of the sector, but uh, we'll just have to see how it pans out. Yeah. On the Cocos, I mean, we, we wrote a little bit about uh, them this week. We, the contingent convertibles, as they're known, the, the bonds that were wiped out. I mean, this has happened uh, a couple of times before, uh, you know, legal action has happened as well a couple of times before, which perhaps emphasises the the contingency of the uh, contingent convertibles. You know, Banco Popular, uh, Yes Bank in in India. You know, in both cases there were aggrieved bondholders, uh, very upset at, at um, being wiped out. There's been a lot of discussion this week about you know the bond prospectus, whether the legality was you know, there to begin with, whether it was a function of the laws that were actually changed on the weekend as part of the uh, rescue deal by UBS. It, a lot of it seems to stem from whether or not this was a viability event. If it was, then that does allow for a write down. The question, I suppose, uh, Alex, you, maybe I'll come to you on this, a difficult question, uh, albeit I have an opinion that I'm going to throw in at the end, is whether this might, you know, permanently increase the, the um, cost of capital for banks, you know, make fundraising more difficult in future. 81s, you know, contingent convertibles were designed as an additional 
method of, of raising capital alongside common equity tier one. If bondholders are now going to demand higher rates, um, I make it more difficult to issue these bonds in future. Yes. Well, big question, as you said. I think you pointed out this morning when we were, we were sort of talking about this in the news meeting that the the price of AT1s in in sort of a, in more liquid markets seems to have rebounded a little bit this week since they they fell off a cliff on Monday. There's a lot of people very very fearful suddenly about this already high risky uh, uh, asset class, which uh, Julian uh, alluded to um, being you know being being a lot riskier than they thought it was. I mean, the other thing that it uh, you know I thought was very interesting on on Monday is that we had quite quickly a, a message rushed up by the ECB following you know the, the the sort of weekend swiss drama um which essentially implied that this this wouldn't happen in the same way in the event of a eurozone bank um collapse um but i mean the rules are the rules are different already um you know but the, the, it, it does go to show the problem about solutions to financial crises like this very acute um banking crisis is is like the crisis themselves they're very hard to anticipate so um you know if if you know, if policymakers in this instance have, um, you know, believed that abrupt sales are better than a resolution to a or winding down of a of a bank balance sheet, um, you know, there's always going to be something messy to them. I mean, to come to your come to your question in a very roundabout way, um, I think there's very unlikely to be any, you know, significant issuance of the of these of these cocoa bonds anytime soon, at least from what we've you know what what people uh, have been reporting this week um but i mean it's i think the point i'd want to make is that it's just really one piece of the puzzle for for banks right now and, you know all deposits are, are costing more and they're going to cost more after this week's um you know central bank interest rate hikes no matter how they're structured so whether it's it's the cost of equity or it's the cost of cost of 81 debt whatever um and, and yeah i suppose for uk investors i saw one chart this week suggesting that barclays 81 um uh, is you know a bigger proportion of the risk weighted assets than any other bank, and it's and it's also most likely to be the most sensitive at the pre-tax pre-tax profit level um, from every increase in the coupon price. Um, so uh, I think it, it's kind of part of a bigger picture that it's it's um, you know and we've written about this uh, in, in the magazine this week or James Norrington has about the you know the other side of the ledger that we sometimes get skipped when looking at banks is that they. Um, uh, you know they they have a cost of of their their funding and their deposit base and that has been rising just as they're hoping to earn net interest income at a greater pace so um this is getting a tougher job for all of them to manage will it lead to you know a credit crunch or 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 more um sort of systemic events within banks um quite possibly but um it, it's it's playing out the 81 drama it's sort of playing out in a bigger story for um, for for this this kind of risk management job that banks have to have to manage, yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I I do think the the eighty one market will come back, you know, more quickly if not immediately than people think, because there's always in these cases a bit of an outcry, and then ultimately a new bond is issued a few months down the line by someone seen as more viable, and everyone gets gets on with it again. But you're right that the point is right now that you know it's not just that part of the the structure that's under strain so there's a lot of pressures there on, on which note just to to wrap up you know in the US as i said at the top we are still seeing some issues with first republic uh julian we are still seeing some you know regional bank concerns yesterday i mean it does seem to me like the messaging is a bit 
confused from the regulators uh, on this in terms of what they want to say or how they want to respond to this crisis. You know, we had comments from Jay Powell yesterday following the Fed hike talking about, you know, attempting to reassure depositors at the same time as um, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, was saying that a universal guarantee was not something they discussed. Now, even if you disagree with the, the concept of universal guarantee, it just seems the messaging is, you know, they're not really on the same page or they're not really, really organised, which, which might be kind of prolonging the, these concerns, these jitters. Well, it probably just reflects the fact that there's no settled view and, and probably in, in the US, no legislation either that would allow for the universal guarantee of dis- the deposits. I mean, I think that's um, uh, that would be a, a question for Congress to, to sort out. Uh, I, I mean, also, it would be a massive uh, taxpayer guarantee as well. I mean, you know, we're talking the, the tens of trillions that, that would be theoretically at risk and then have to be insured. Uh, but the, the thing to make the point to make on deposits though is interesting is that uh, the U.S. deposit levels had been falling well prior to the the crisis, so they'd already peaked in April last year, and uh, it might be uh, a, a sign that um, obviously that the cycle is a bit more advanced in the U.S. anyway. So you could see, yeah, there, yeah, the, the idea that um, the, the Fed hiking. Uh, rates at the same time as deposits are falling, it shows that they're they're justifiably worried about how much health there is left in the economy or how much growth there is left, uh, and and that makes the that consequently then makes the outlook for legislating for kind of deposit insurance very difficult because then how how do you how do you define uh, what the minimum deposit base is for a bank if deposits are, def- are going out of the door structurally anyway. So yeah, it's a, it's it's a very complex question, and it's not really a surprise that uh, not everyone is is singing from the same hymn sheet, mm. hymn sheet on that. That that is fair enough. Yeah. Well, market action this week after Monday has been a bit calmer. Although that said, in, in banking crises, big and small, it does seem to be the weekend when the real activity happens. So. Uh, you know, keep an eye out over Friday, Saturday, Sunday this week. The Fed yesterday as well did, I think, uh, revise down relative to expectations. It's, you know, outlook for growth this year, factoring in a tightening of financial conditions already. So just depends how that plays out now. Now I'm joined by FT consumer editor Claire Barrett, whose book, What They Don't Teach You About Money, has been published this month. Claire, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Dan. An honour to be back at the IC, even if only in virtual form. It's great to have you back as well. Thank you for for joining us today. Uh, Your book is a book aimed at people in a variety of different stages of life, perhaps, Mm -hmm. whether they're just starting out or whether they simply want to learn more about money matters in general. And there's all kinds of useful info there on everything from budgeting to property and, of course, investing as well, which we'll get to in a minute. There's also lots of good information on talking about money yeah. with your partner or family or even at work. And I wanted to start on that point. I mean, is this a very British thing to be uncomfortable talking about money? Because it does feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that British people are probably worse, certainly worse than Americans. It's very very ordinary to have conversations even about investing in stocks um, around mm. the, the dinner table in America. And it's very much something that people see that they need to do. It's a life skill. It's part of life. And it's just not embedded in British culture in the same way. Lots of us are very in the dark about things like pensions, 
we know what a cash ISA is, but not so much a stocks and shares ISA. And there's a feeling that investing is for people who've got a lot of money, which is one of the myths that I really wanted to bust in this book. Now, I came up with the title, What They Don't Teach You About Money, because I thought it was quite intriguing. And also because we're not really taught anything. There's very little financial education in schools, at university or in the workplace, which is something that the FT's Flick charity, the Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, is looking to change. But also, one of the problems with books about money is that the people who could perhaps really benefit from them aren't the people who are going to rush into a to a bookshop and, and buy them. So one of the titles that I had considered was a money book for people who would never, ever buy a book about money, because things like finding ways of talking, especially to your partner about money, finding ways of breaking down the emotional barriers that might exist within your own mind to dealing with money. These are very much the first steps that we need to take before we get into the off-putting detail of products and structures and interest rates and tax relief and all of the kind of scary things that make us go, Ugh. but talking about money is definitely the first step. And that includes listening to ourselves um, and our own fears and desires and worries about money, which in the cost of living crisis, of course, have been have been very amplified. So while I wouldn't say it's a silver lining um, to the terrible financial hardship that people have been suffering since the pandemic, it's definitely made it easier, I think, for a lot of people to lose the shame in talking about money and saying, I don't actually know um, very much about this and I want to educate myself and find out more. And that's squarely the type of audience that my book is aimed at. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, about the last few years and, and whether that may start to change things and leading on from that I suppose uh, one other thing that's uh, a big uh, point in the book uh, understandably so is setting goals mm. having goals in mind and this is something you know all investors uh, I think should keep in mind whatever their their stage of life and, and you talk in the book about the, the importance of that from a financial planning perspective and also from a you know mental well-being perspective I think. Yeah, I mean, just feeling like you're working towards something bigger is a crucial part, I think, of establishing financial independence. It's a definition that I grapple with at, at the end of the book. But I do think that this feeling of financial independence stems from the belief that we can do small things consistently every day over time that are going to make our overall financial picture better. And one of the things that I've picked up on is being consistent with when it comes to making a plan. You might feel that things are hopeless. If we can save £2.70 a day, we'd have £1,000 nearly within a year. And that's one of those statistics that shocks people because it doesn't sound like a lot of money. But when you scale it up, um, it, you know, it really is. And you can apply the same in reverse to, to budgeting. Now, month by month, you might not think that spending £100 on Uber um, is, you know, all that much of a problem. But when you scale it up over a year, look at your annual total, you know, you're spending well over £1,000 on getting taxis. I mean, even if you were to get the bus, like half the time, um, you could you could reduce that bill. So I really encourage people to take a step back, look at their overall patterns when it comes to saving and spending, and think a bit more clearly about how they could generate that surplus, that all important surplus, the spare money 
um, it's not mythical, <laughs> it does exist, um, that we can have a goal that we're working towards, which really helps to which really helps with our motivation to put that money away to a higher purpose so it can build and be invested and grow over time. And I've got lots of examples in the book about how for young people, especially starting to put money into a pension from an early age can really snowball over time. I think that pensions have a have a branding problem. We think pension, we think pensioner, and that definitely puts a lot of young people off, especially at the moment when there are so many other demands on our cash. But as I say in the book, paying more into your pension could be the fastest way of getting a pay rise if your company does a matched um, contributions policy where the more you pay in, the more that they will pay in. But going back to the title, what they don't teach you about money, not a lot of people know that. And every talk that I have ever done, I think about personal finance, I've said to people, make it your mission when you go back to the office afterwards to go to the HR team and find out about employee matched contributions. Because that is a really, really fantastic way that you can get the biggest bang for your investing buck, um, much more valuable than more eye-catching things like crypto, which lots of young investors have, have got into, or trading meme stock shares. All of those things carry huge amounts of risk. This is a bit more boring, um, but I like boring and sensible. And I'm trying to do um, a good job of explaining the basics to people, to give them the confidence to go out into the world, find out the things that they need to know, and make decisions that could really change their future financial direction. Mm. One interesting statistic in, in the book that I uh, uh, sort of found quite remarkable as well was when you mention, uh, for a lot of people, on average, perhaps the is the age of seven at which your money habits uh, you know, start to be ingrained. So that's not to say there can't be change. And obviously, in, in mm. a lot of cases, you know, it's important to try and overcome perhaps some of those inbuilt habits. But that seemed really interesting and how early we form some of our attitudes to money and saving and ultimately investing as well. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why um, on the Money Clinic podcast that I present for the FT, a question that we always ask our guests is, what's your earliest money memory? Because it gives a real insight into what was going on in that person's life when they were growing up. And we do take the biggest financial cues as children from our parents and, and caregivers. And depending on what kind of things really stay with you or resonated with you when you were younger, that can have all kinds of sort of unconscious influences on your behaviour as adults. So lots of people, like I grew up, I was born in the 1970s, similar period to now in terms of um, runaway inflation, um, high food prices, the three-day week. I'm sure many listeners will um, remember this. If they don't, then let's hope that we're not going to go quite so far back to those times in the present day. But I was brought up in a family where saving money was absolutely crucial. Money was tight. There wasn't much of it around when I was growing up. And that has made me very conservative and risk averse as an adult and in some ways that's been to my cost because I've always wanted to have cash in savings accounts I've always feared investing um, and risking money and it took me until my 30s really when I started working for the Investors Chronicle especially to really understand what's an appropriate level of cash to hold and how else could I put um, more of my money to work for, for the long term to avoid it being 
gobbled up by by inflation. So that, that's a really important one. Um, lots of people who I speak to on the Money Clinic podcast have given other examples like Sol Campbell, the footballing legend. He was the youngest of 12 siblings when he was growing up and he told me his earliest money memory was looking at all of the property pages in the back of the Newham Gazette in East London because he wanted to know how much would it cost to buy a bigger property where he could have the luxury of his own bedroom because having to share a room with you know three or four siblings that's something that really preyed on his mind. Is it a coincidence that years later um, he's got a multi-million pound property investment portfolio? I don't think so. So there are all kinds of ways that it can influence you, um, maybe with you realising it, maybe without you realising it. But we can also develop some of these habits or imbalances that are not helpful for our finances. So I suggest going back, having a look at these roots of our of, of our behaviours and thinking about steps that we could take to, to change um, if, they're, if they're not very helpful for our finances and also to be really, really aware as parents what kind of examples and lessons we are providing for the next generation, which is a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> yeah, I was going to come on to that, actually, as, as you say, for, for listeners, you know, with children, perhaps coming up to that age or, you know, at any age, really, uh, it's something to be conscious of as well that, that you know, financial education is important and it isn't something they're necessarily going to learn at all in school so you know that's a parental role right there yeah and one thing that has always surprised me over the years like ic readers and ft readers who i've had the privilege of meeting they like the fact that you get this hugely generous nine thousand pounds a year limit on junior ices but they don't like the fact that the children i mean the money is theirs when they turn 18 and they fear that they're just going to act like lottery winners, um, especially if they come into a, to a lot of money. I mean, you know, you do the maths if you're saving and investing £9,000 a year for a child every year for 18 years. It's likely to be tens of, of, of thousands of pounds that could be coming their way. And I think that it's also, I think that as well as being our responsibility to you know to save and put money aside for for children nieces nephews grandchildren in our family it's also our responsibility to teach them about what that money's for and about what investing is and i've actually started to do that with my twin nephews who were seven a couple of months ago um at christmas time I revealed to them that Auntie Claire is saving £50 a month each um, into their junior ices. Uh, and they were intrigued. I mean, naturally, children of any age, they're all really obsessed with with, with money and interested in this kind of portal um, in, into the adult world. I haven't spoken to them in any great detail about what the stock market is, because it's not really a very tangible concept. But what I have been talking to them about are... Um, what I have been talking to them about is what a company is, because there are lots of companies that their global tracker fund that I've chosen for them has got exposure to um, that, that are brands they know. You know, they've got an Amazon Alexa um, in their house. They know about Amazon. They know about Netflix because that's something that they used to watch their cartoons. They know about lots of other companies, car manufacturers. One of them is really into cars. Um you know, big retailers um, that they might go in and out of, names that they recognise on the high street. So it's just sort of planting the seed in their minds. A little bit of information over time. It's not one conversation. It's very much an ongoing 
conversation and then you would hope that by the time they do reach the age at which the control of the money in the ISA is passed to them they'll continue um, some of those good investing habits and be in a position where they can make a really informed choice. Well the book as I say what they don't teach you about money uh, has been published this month Uh, do pick it up uh, listeners if you're interested in the subject or if your loved ones are financial education obviously is a crucial to the well-being of our society. Uh, Claire, I know you've returned to the IC's pages as well this month with a, with a feature on the book, so look out for that as well. Uh, but for now, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. Well, it's been a pleasure and cheeky plug. We're doing a free FT event. Um, it's a virtual event on the 21st of April, which is a Friday lunchtime, so you can come and have lunch lunch with the FT. And the, And the registration link, if you want to do that, is ft.com slash money event. But it's all in the IC article too. I'm sure it'll be a great event. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.